welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all their support with these podcasts. Joining me today is Gail Topping. Gail has worked for the Scottish Ambulance Service for over 22 years now. I think I'm going to let her explain a bit about her background because that kind of leads us into what we're going to talk about today. So Gail, thanks so much for agreeing to come on and chat to us. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to join you. As you say, I worked for the Scottish Ambulance Service, so been in for quite a long time, 22 years, and I started off in the control room which was a, a really close-knit, tight team. You know, we looked out for each other, quite a small environment at that time. We, we still had eight control rooms in Scotland. So, yeah, we all looked out for each other. And then I went operationally after about three years and very different environment, working at a, quite a big station and being on relief at that time, worked with lots of different people all the time. You didn't really initially get to know people very quickly, but very early on in my career I became known as a jinx. That was my nickname at station, Jinxy, because I had horrific jobs. And I think one of them really, really affected me. And I was only six weeks out of training school and it was horrendous. It involved multiple casualties, all young children. And I was shocked that immediately after it, we were just dispatching another job. There was nobody asking, are you okay? There was no automatic sending back to station for a debrief or anything, which was my expectation. Having come for the control room, I knew that that's, that would be expected. But it didn't happen that night. And it really, really affected me because I couldn't understand how an organisation where we look after people, that's our job. But on that night, I didn't feel looked after. And it, it really did upset the balance in my head a little bit and it really stuck with me for a long time and I started to change. I had gone from quite pleasant on station although I was new I was still very keen to learn and then I I turned into this horrible person over a number of months and years I I turned into a completely horrible person to, to work alongside and didn't really didn't really tie in with what was happening. I just, we just thought it was just part of the job that you just became this nasty person to work alongside because it, it just got to you. And then a few years ago, I went to another job which really, really affected me. I, I had a guy come lunging at me with a knife while I was trying to treat a patient on scene. And I had to barricade myself into a hallway and make a quick exit for the, the ambulance and call the police as a priority on the radio. And and afterwards, got to the hospital and afterwards radioed up to say, Do you know, the, the police need statements. And there was no, are you OK? There was no return to station and get a cup of tea, we'll check in with you afterwards. And I left work that night completely demoralised. I was in tears on the way home. 
I was due out the next again night and I, I couldn't sleep. I was tossing and turning and I got ready to go back out to work that night and I I couldn't, I, I couldn't, I couldn't leave for work. I completely broke down in my kitchen. I was a sobbing mess. And it wasn't, it wasn't the fact that the guy had came at me with a knife. It had stirred memories of the job that had happened. It was about 13 years prior. And it was the same feelings of, you're just a number. Nobody cares. You know, it doesn't matter what happens, that nobody's really looking out for you. And I made a decision over the next few days. I had emailed senior managers to say, this is how I'm feeling. I completely feel not valued at all. I feel like I'm just a number. And I realised that actually the changes in my behaviour over the previous years had been as a direct result of that first incident. And then accumulation of jobs that had happened after that, somewhere I had received excellent support, which was the benchmark against which we should set every single staff receiving support or, or needing support. Um, and then other times where you just felt completely abandoned. So it was like a light bulb moment in my head, re- realisation of how two very different jobs, but similar in terms of the aftermath, had profoundly affected me. And the first one had affected me very, very negatively. But I realised that the second one, I could, I could go on continuing to be this belligerent member of staff who just rocked against the system and everything, or I could try and make a positive difference. I didn't want to see any other member of staff going through what I had went through. So I decided that actually I was going to try and change the system. I was going to try and make it better. And even if I couldn't achieve it, on a national basis, but if I could change it for one other person to not go through what I had went through, then that for me would be a positive outcome. Um, So I I met with uh, one of the managers from the control room, Ruth Anderson, and we got together. She suggested that I come in and and initially just start telling my story to the control room staff to, to see the impact that it could have if staff don't feel supported after a, a difficult incident. Yeah. Um, and then from there, it just kind of snowballed. We developed a more formal campaign and we called it Are You OK? We'd, we'd looked at various organisations and, and actually the one that resonated most closely was the Australian mental health-based charity of the same name, Are You OK? And we all we wanted was to for people, our, our peers, our colleagues, to look out for each other. And to recognise when somebody was struggling or to identify if if someone's been at a a bad job, that you automatically ask, are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? And, you know, just check in with them because expecting people to continue, we're not robots. We're human beings and we've got um, our own lives outside of work and things impact either coming from home into the work environment or sometimes we take work home with us and that can impact on on our relationships with friends and family so we just wanted people to start looking out for each other a little bit better and and recognize that actually we do a hard job no matter what what your job title is in the service you know we are dealing with some terrible things on a day-to-day basis whether you're working in the control room taking calls 
dispatching ambulances, working in frontline ambulances or any of the other support services. It's a stressful job. Do you know, it never dies down. Do you know, we're always busy. So if we can look out for each other informally, just by asking, are you OK? And, and checking in more regularly gives people an opportunity to say when they're not. But also if they don't feel comfortable to talk about it at that time, at least feel that, that somebody's there to support them if they need it, if they want to revisit it at a later date, do you know, sort of. That's all we did, and it, it kind of took off because I think a lot of people were crying out for it. That's all that people want is recognition that actually this is hard. They just want to feel supported. They want to feel valued. They don't want to feel like they are just a, a number, that their contribution is being recognised and we're there for them if they feel that they want a little bit more support afterwards, so... There's a couple of things that really struck from hearing your story there. And I guess the first is that all of us have got, to a greater or lesser extent, those skeletons in our subconscious, you know, the jobs that stick with us and that every so often rattle around and make themselves known. And it doesn't matter how long you've been in the job, whether you're in the control room or out and about. Actually, everybody gets exposed to these high-stress, high-stakes situations. And... And you're right, it doesn't require a master's degree in psychotherapy to just check in on folk. No, for the most part, I think all that people want is an opportunity to offload. Do you know, they want to sit down and be listened to and heard. Anybody can listen, but to actively listen is different. And, you know, to sit down and and actually hear somebody and, and hear what's going on with them, to see through some of the emotions. So a lot of people, I think, are at times come across as quite angry, but I read somewhere that anger, for the most part, in most situations, is actually born from fear. So yep. if you can look at the angry person and actually see that actually they're scared and get to the root of what is making them fearful, what are they scared of, then then I think we're a lot more empathetic to the person that is scared than just seeing the anger. So I turned into the angry person. But actually, at the root of that was just fear that I was being abandoned and nobody really cared about how things were impacting on members of staff on a day-to-day basis. So, Yeah. The other thing that really struck is sitting here with a basics hat on that first job that you describe. Mm. You know, being on the relief, not having a fixed working pattern, a fixed sort of partner, moving, shifting between teams, shifts, patterns, different people, never having the chance to build that tight-knit relationship where people will pick up on the red flags and on the, the smoke signals that things aren't going okay. Yeah. That actually is quite analogous to a lot of our basics responders who, by virtue of where they live or the communities they're in, they are lone clinicians and don't have yeah. as much of a support network around them. Yeah, Absolutely. Talk me through the basics of the IUOK and what it is that you're asking folk to do. It's really simple. It's just being able to identify changes in behaviour, which is perhaps a bit more difficult when you are working remotely, lots of lone responders. But again, that comes down to we've got key members of staff that can check in more regularly, get to know people. So whether that's team leaders who are responsible for SAT staff, um, whether it's the dispatchers in the control room who can who can hear people in people's voices, do you know, that, that actually the emotion at the back of it or, do you know, just checking in with them. Or colleagues, fellow volunteers, 
me I, I work alongside somebody most of the time and just being able to identify that actually there's something a little bit off about them today they're not their usual self and having the conversation having the courage to to start the conversation I think a lot of people shy away from it because they think that they're going to start some kind of counselling session and it's not about that it's not about formal counselling you don't have to to have had a degree in psychotherapy to initiate that first contact and just simply asking somebody are you okay will be the the chance for somebody to say and and I always tell people don't just ask it once ask it twice because if you ask me are you okay my brain will just automatically make my mouth say I'm fine I'm just tired and I think the vast majority of people in the UK will probably do the same thing because we're quite a stoic lot and we tend to shy away from talking about emotions Mm. but if you ask the person are you sure you're okay because I've noticed that actually you're a bit quieter today than normal or you didn't turn up on time and that's not like you or you know you whatever it is that you've noticed about them that's a bit off if you if you actually say it the second time are you sure you're okay because I've noticed that this is different um, and and then if they still say nope nope I'm fine they obviously don't want to have the conversation at that time do you know and th- and that's absolutely fine but you've opened the door you've let them know that you're there for them you've noticed and it gives them a chance to come back to it if they go away and think about it or it gives them a chance just to sit down and actually say you know what you're right there is something going on so one of the things that the Australian project is really keen to do is sort of, I guess, a little bit of preparation before you ask the question to say, actually, you know, if somebody turns around and says, no, I'm not okay, mm-hmm. um, they seem to sort of put quite a bit of weight on thinking through, actually, where am I going to sign this person to? Am, am I in a position to have that conversation with them? I think a big part of what we were saying to people, because Ruth and I went around Scotland to various places and we delivered a a presentation and I told my story and then I would encourage people to start conversations but people don't really know how to set the scene I think so sitting in a busy mess room in front of loads of people is not the best place to start that conversation because nobody is going to want to offload their deepest thoughts and fears in front of perhaps some strangers or people that they, they don't absolutely trust with that so having a quiet area safe space for me that's probably the front cab of the ambulance after the job because I know that what happens in the front of that cab what gets said in there should remain there so having a quiet place where there aren't many distractions and for me I would ensure that my mobile phone is switched to silent switched off that I'm not distracted by a computer screen or do you know that I'm not going to get a job that I'm, I'm not yet clear or or we're unavailable at that time for whatever reason. And then making sure that you're making eye contact with the person so that they know that actually you're you're not you're not avoiding that. You know, you're dealing with it head on, that you're looking at them, maintaining eye contact, facing them. And I think we're we don't want it to be about confrontation. It's not about forcing somebody to talk. But it's just giving them the heads up that actually it's all right. Do you know, I'm not going to castigate you for having a negative reaction to a job. Yeah. You know, two people will go to the same incident and one person might walk away completely unaffected. But the other person might be. 
And it's it's about recognising that actually we've all got different experiences. So I might go into somebody who's dying of cancer and be profoundly affected by that because I have watched two members of my family, close members of my family, die from cancer. And whereas another person who hasn't got that experience might go in and, and be not as affected as I am. So everyone's different and just having that recognition and we always try to say that it's better for somebody to say something than to do nothing. So to actually ask the person are you okay is better than to shy away from it and not ask the question and leave that person struggling, leaving them feeling as though nobody cares. So yeah, setting the scene is really important and making sure that you, the person knows that undivided attention, 100%, it's we're there to support them and we're not going to be distracted by an email coming through or a phone call or a radio message that the conversation can be had and it's absolutely okay to have that. Once you've established that space to talk and you've opened the conversation and you've given somebody space to vent about the job or to air their concerns, I guess the other concern that a lot of folk have is what happens next. Most of us don't have the the bandwidth to take on everybody else's problems so i guess mm. part of this conversation needs to be pointing them towards the next steps that they might want to take yeah i think it varies from individual to individual and the situation will be different for for some people that conversation might be enough and by the end of it they're laughing and back to their usual self of actually i feel much better i feel much better for getting that off my chest um, for others, there might be a little bit more more formal help required. That could be, do you feel that they need perhaps GP support? Is it something that they would be willing to talk to their GP about? Do they want to maybe access occupational health? And you don't need referred to, you don't need referred from the work. You know, you can refer yourself. I guess the, there's lots of third sector organisations, you know, Breathing Space, Samaritans, that I find, and I've worked quite closely with, with Jill Morton on a couple of occasions, who runs the Lifeline Scotland website, and the information that's on that, with links to organisations and, and explanations about what's happening when you are feeling stressed, how some people are okay and some people aren't after particularly bad jobs, why it's okay to feel okay afterwards. And I think Lifeline Scotland's a great resource. For myself, I had been to the GP and had been on various medications for a long time, which worked to different degrees and then sometimes it would stop working. But actually, I think after the knife incident and stuff really kind of started to pull together in my head that actually this is a lot more serious. And I was formally diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, ended up going to see a psychologist. I was there for a long time working through the stuff that had been going on. And that was amazing, Do you know, just to have that realisation that actually I am, I am not broken. I have had an injury happen to me and it's a work-related injury. And working through the issues and, and going through the therapy, I ended up with a treatment called EMDR and it really worked for me. And now I am not on any medication. I still have good days and bad days. I'm not cured of PTSD, 
but I live with it, I manage it a lot better than I did. And I think for everybody that's affected, you know, the, the level of support will be dependent on the individual and what they're looking for and, and being able to signpost them to things like lifelines, their own GP, is probably the best place to start, I think. Mm. And we'll make sure that the links to the things that you're mentioning will go up with the podcast. It's interesting, you know, you've been through a very extreme end of of something that I think all of us at some level will be able to reflect on to a lesser degree. A lot of things that make good clinicians good clinicians are the way that they respond to the jobs that go badly, both initially in the moment, but also longer term, looking back, reflecting. And some of the best clinicians I've worked with are ones who have been through the mill. And I think that empathy, the analytical mindset, the ability to look at a job from all sides is something that never gets taught at medical school or when you're doing a paramedic degree. Mm. But actually, the lived experience that you've described there, that sort of thing can make people into a much better clinician, irrespective of their sort of ability to, to function as a human. Um, and I think that's probably where society as a whole, but also the, the culture within the ambulance services is changing. So years ago, I was off sick for a bit of time because of poor mental health. And I had two or three different people say to me, is this really the job for you? And actually... I agree. I think that actually my experiences, my ability to empathise with the patients and you don't want to get into the level where you are as distressed as the patient or experiencing the same level of distress. But ultimately, you know, for me, I was really badly affected. I was distressed and I wasn't coping very well. But having gone through that, having received treatment and been able to now reflect back on that time, I think that actually that does make me a better paramedic because I bring a, a very human side to that. And it's not all about the Gucci stuff, as I call it, you know, all the, all the interventions that I can do and all the drugs that I can give. Actually, a big part of it is just being able to care. Yeah. You know, for most people, I think that they will look back on what you've done and they remember the things that you've done or in some instances, they won't even remember what you've said to them, but they will remember how you made them feel. And if you can connect with that person on a human being level and understand what they're going through and empathise with them to a certain extent, then then yeah, the, the, I think the patients come away from that feeling, actually, that person was so lovely to me. Do you know? Absolutely. Gail, I feel really privileged that you've come and shared your story and shown us, you know, this isn't complex high-end science but actually you know this is a campaign that is demonstrably making a big difference we ask all of our presenters to give three top tips for folks to kind of take away i just wonder what your thoughts are in terms of the campaign and in terms of ways that folk can look after themselves and each other so i think the top three tips that i would take is you you have to look after yourself first you have to put your own oxygen mask on first so like you had alluded to earlier, that you know, if you if you're not in the right frame of mind yourself, for some people it's actually beneficial for them to support other people. So I, I'm very good at looking after others and not very good at looking after myself, or I certainly wasn't for a long time. But there are some times where I've had to step back and say, actually, I, I, I'm not in a position to support others at the moment. So I went quiet for a long time 
for a bit of time with Are You Okay? Because I, I wasn't in a good space myself and I couldn't give 100% of me um, and I, I didn't want to shortchange the, the people that, that were perhaps needing support. So, yeah, you have to look after yourself first. You need to be in a good frame of mind. You can't help everyone else if you're running an empty. So taking care of yourself is definitely top priority. And I, I think it's really important that people don't shy away from talking about their mental health. I felt ashamed for a long time. There is a lot of stigma still about. It's a lot better than it used to be, but there's still too much stigma attached to mental health. But the more people that have those conversations, the less stigma will be attached to it because it will become the norm. We check in on physical health, you know, all the time. You're not scared to say, oh, I've, I've hurt my leg today or my back's aching. I had a really heavy lift and it's really affected me and I'm really struggling and people will pull out all the stops to support you and I'll take the, the heavy end of the trolley bed or the, the chair or whatever. And we should be doing that with mental health as well. When somebody's really struggling, we step in and support them and it shouldn't be any different. Mental health, physical health, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, it's a person's health. So talking about it is really important and starting the conversations and just fostering that atmosphere, that environment where it is safe to talk about it without fear of stigma or shame. And I think, I think finally, kindness is really underrated. But I think when you go into any kind of workplace, there will always be people gossiping about others. Um, do you know that kind of... In some cases, there might be a bit of backstabbing, but actually... We need to eradicate that. That needs to go because a kind workplace is a healthy workplace. And that won't just be for the staff that work there, but for us in the ambulance service, actually, that will translate to the, the patients as well, that we are providing a better service. Kindness is it's actually contagious. So if, if one person is walking down the corridor and they smile and say hello to another person, and that person is more likely to go out and be kind to others. So it creates its own kind of chain reaction. We don't know what other people are going through in their own life. We don't know. Somebody can put on a, an image of they've got it all together and actually inside they're really struggling. So if we can just be kind to everyone, then we'll hopefully just get through. It might just be the little bit of light in someone's day that helps them keep going. Absolutely. Gail, that's absolutely fascinating. And as I say, I feel very privileged that you've been willing to come on and chat about your story. I guess from Basic's point of view, I just want to mention the responder support clinicians. Um, we've got a couple of very experienced Basic's responders and certainly uh, jobs, niggles, things that you're not sure about, things that you just want to talk over. The responder support clinicians are there and more than happy to get involved and to support you because we know that by us giving you that support we can keep you out on the road doing the things that, that you love doing and also helping folk which ultimately is the, the aim of the game yeah definitely Gail thank you so much for coming on oh you're very welcome it's a pleasure that's it for this week if you have any comments or questions visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.